Welcome to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast, a conversation built to help you address the mess, connect the dots, and defeat addiction. Doing your work matters because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. Life is tough and we're here to help. I'm your host, Ben Derrick, and as always, I'll be joined by Roan Hunter. Let's jump right in. Roan, back again for another episode. I'm getting better at that. You really are. Uh, you, you, you've got, you've even got it memory. You used to have notes. No, you, not you had anymore. To read it now. Now you've got it memorized. My it's wife pretty says, impressive. "Hey, you're a smart man. Can you think up something different to say?" I'm like, "Look, if it isn't broken, why would we fix it?" it yeah, it works, man. We're we're men. You <laughs> That's know. right. We have to think about something. Well, this is one of the best parts of my week. We get to sit down and, and do this and listen to very smart people talk about uh, things, and we recruit them in. We have guests <laughs> to talk about smart things, and uh, this guest today. I will be very frank with you behind this microphone. I was shocked that you were able to secure this interview, and thank God you did. Man, I uh, it just, again, one of these episodes that I've been looking forward to. Um, and uh, today we're going to be talking with uh, Tulian Tully Chavidjan. Chavidjan, I think... Think I pronounced it right. He, he, he. He'll he'll help you with the name. Okay. On on the episode, but but wow, I mean, what a story! And certainly, uh, sex, God, and chaos. Mm. Uh, this this he, we could put his picture on the on the cover of the podcast uh, permanently. Uh, just being in 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 the role that he was in, um, just internationally known. Uh, pastor uh, Billy Graham's grandson, uh, and and just a very spectacular public uh, public fall, uh, and but what a story and what a picture of just the redemptive work of God, uh, and and now as he says, uh, you know, qualified and bona fide. Uh, I think I added bona fide. Mm, that sounds like you. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but certainly um, now doing real ministry and, and real pastoring. Uh, he describes the church that uh, that he's involved with now. It's it's a recovery recovery place masquerading as, as a church. It's what and, they should be, all of them. Wow. Um, man, that's, that's my dream. Uh, mm. it, and it's, there's, there's not many of those out there, but it needs to be. And so, man, just uh, this conversation was just incredible. And um, what what a what a remarkable remarkable story uh, to go through what he did, lose everything uh, almost instantly and to some degree, and survive it. Um, that's that's a testimony to God. Mm, we say this all the time as we're working with men, um, men especially are mm. concerned how they're going to be viewed as they discuss the dark parts of their story, their brokenness, as we term it. And we always follow up by saying, man, you are a more attractive masculine figure. When you're willing to be open with your brokenness, that's the kind of man that most men want to follow because most of us don't have the courage to do that. And, and you do. And this guy's just been very public mm. with his journey to healing. And obviously the fall was very public. And we were discussing off mic, just the pressure of any time his name is mentioned, partly because his name's so <laughs> difficult, it's easier to say Billy Graham's grandson, you know. Uh, but just even the pressure of that, the mantle of that, mm. I just can't imagine. And this guy still has a commitment to want to help people 
through their brokenness. That's inspirational. Mm, it is. And, you know, as we often say, man, God uses our brokenness uh, a whole lot more than he uses our resumes. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to, without further delay, here's our episode <laughs> with Tully. There you go. We got it. <laughs> man, welcome back, everybody, to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast. Uh, excited today. Uh, have a uh, another very special guest, uh, a guy that I've um, known about, uh, followed, um, knew the story, and um, a guy that's uh, lived this stuff that we talk about every day uh, in a very real way and in a very public way. Uh, and so, man, uh, uh, we are so glad that you're with us. Uh, man, uh, uh, Tully, uh, Tullian, uh, Chavidian. I'll, I'll give you a uh, tutorial here in a second on how to pronounce. All right, all right, <laughs> a- absolutely. But yeah, we've got uh, we've got Tully with us, uh, Tully Chavidian, um, and uh, just again excited to uh, have you as a guest on the podcast, and uh, so glad that you were able to find the time to join us and kind of. Uh, let us uh, learn more about you and get to know you better. Well, thanks for having me on, Roan. It's a it's a privilege, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. But I but let, let let's do a brief tutorial on my name because it is a bear, an absolute bear. It's scarring when you look at it, uh, but it it's not as bad when you understand how to pronounce it. So my full name is William Graham Tullian Chavigian. Uh, it's a mouthful. Um, the William Graham is after my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad. Uh, Tullian, it's pronounced Tullian, uh, is after the early church father Tertullian that my mother was studying when she was pregnant with me. And she was so captivated by this guy that she prayed and said, God, if the baby that you're building in my belly uh, is a boy, I'm going to name him Tertullian. Uh, so rumor has it that for the first two or three days I was alive, it was William Graham Tertullian Chavigian. Thank God she dropped the Tur, so it's just Tullian. Uh, and the last name, Chavigian, it's an Armenian last name. My my dad was born and raised in Switzerland, but his dad was uh, born and raised in Armenia. Uh, and so Chavigian, anything ending in I-A-N is a dead giveaway that it's an Armenian last name. So like Kardashian, Kevorkian, Chavigian. <laughs> uh, so those are all Armenians. Um, um, and so it rhymes. Sometimes this helps people. I heard my mom say this uh, in all my growing up years that Chavigian rhymes with religion. Sometimes that helps people. Ah. So it's Tullian. Some people go Tullian or Twillian or, you know, whatever, but it's Tullian um, and Chivigian. And for, for whatever reason, my entire life, I've gone by Tullian. That's what my, that's what my parents uh, always referred to me as. So I've never gone by William, um, although that would have made my life a hell of a lot easier. Uh, but Tullian. So I'm, I'm stuck with Tullian. But I'm, I'm happy. That's it. Uh, it's unique. It's a conversation starter, and it gives me the ability to explain my heritage. So I don't know if our listeners caught it, but you know that that first part of your name, William Graham. Uh, some of you people may know of the. There's this guy named Billy Graham, and uh, 
that was your grandfather. And um, yes, it was. And, yeah. and then you get uh, you, so you got you've got you know kind of that to live up to, and then you get named after uh, Tertullian. Right. Uh, yeah, you, you, yeah, I yeah. was doomed so from you, the get-go. You had pressure right out of the chute, man. <laughs> right Holy out of cow. the womb. <laughs> A yeah. lot to live up to. I yes. know. Yeah, so and, and I, I have uh, consistently failed to live up to both those names, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a perfect track record of inconsistency living up to those names. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, awesome. So, man, uh, just kind of uh, give us, uh, let's just jump into uh, kind of your story. Um, you know, growing up in that uh, kind of, you know, uh, Christian uh, expectation and perfection. Um, and so, and then, you know, just kind of bring us up to um, where things are uh, today. Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me on. Um, I've, I've, I, like I said, I've been looking forward to this. I love what you guys are doing uh, and greatly appreciate it. Um, so I am uh, the middle of seven kids, uh, born to an amazing mom and an amazing dad. Uh, I have nothing but fond memories of my upbringing. My home growing up was a happy home. It was it was Christian, um, but it was not legalistic in any way. Uh, and that grace reigned supreme in our home. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that because I talked to a lot of people who grew up inside the church or inside Christian homes, and it tended to be somewhat oppressive, somewhat legalistic. In fact, there are a lot of people that I know who, because they grew up that way, are, have walked away from the faith altogether because that's what they think Christianity is. Um, that was not the case for me. Um, I did, however, at 16 years old, drop out of high school. I got kicked out of my house. Um, I, my, I was just, I, I was living very recklessly, and my parents got to a point where they said, listen, we, we love you. Um, but you, if you're going to continue living this way, you can't live this way under our roof. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, born in Jacksonville, uh, grew up in Fort Lauderdale. So when you're 16 years old in Fort Lauderdale, the late 80s, early 90s, and you no longer have teachers looking over your shoulder or you know uh, parents breathing down your neck, and you're finally free to do whatever you want to do, you can get into some serious trouble. Which I did, um, and enjoyed all of that trouble for a season. Um, but the Bible says that you know sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me at 21. It wasn't one particular event or one particular crisis. It was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. And I knew what the answer was because of the way I was raised. So very much like the prodigal son, I sort of sheepishly made my way home, uh, was warmly embraced, welcomed. Of course, it was, you know, it was an answer to years and years of prayers from my parents and from my extended family and from uh, family friends. So, uh, you know, there was a real party uh, at my homecoming. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was working at the time at a hotel, um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. But 
I knew that I wanted to tell the world in one way, shape, or form, or to tell anybody who would listen about this amazingly gracious God who runs after rebels like me. Uh, I knew myself well enough to know that I didn't deserve the, the affection of God. I didn't deserve the approval of God. I didn't deserve God's love. Um, and yet he persistently pursued me. And I could see that looking back, uh, that he persistently pursued me. And most of the people that I had been around during those years, uh, you know, they didn't believe in God. They didn't, God was irrelevant to them. But I thought to myself, I think God would be a comfort to these people if they knew who he was. So, um, but I still didn't know what form that would take. So I, I continued, you know, working at the hotel. Uh, I had been dating a girl for about a year and a half at that point. She became a, she didn't grow up in a Christian home, but when that change happened with me, she became a Christian at that time. Uh, and shortly thereafter, we got engaged, probably about, uh, maybe three months into our engagement, uh, we found out that she was pregnant. So even though we were already planning to get married, we weren't planning to be parents that early. Um, so we bumped up the wedding a few months so that um, you know she wouldn't be nine months pregnant uh, at our wedding. Uh, we got married in the summer of 1994. We were both 21 years old. Um, I immediately, we immediately moved uh, and I started college. Uh, because by that time I knew what I wanted to study. I knew that I wanted to study at, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to study God. I wanted to know God. I wanted to learn about God. Um, and so I got accepted, uh, to a Christian university, um, in Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia International University. Loved, loved, loved my time there. Graduated in three and a half years with a degree in philosophy. By the time I graduated, my wife at the time and I had two two small boys. Um, when I finished college, I knew that I wanted to go to seminary. I wasn't sure if I was going to one day be a preacher or a professor, uh, but I, I I knew that God had given me gifts to teach. Um, and so we ended up moving to Orlando. Um, my wife at the time and our two small boys moved to Orlando. Uh, I attended Reformed Theological Seminary, was there for three years, uh, and by the time I graduated from seminary, my wife at the time was pregnant with child number three. Uh, I was, I think, 26 or 27 years old. No, 20. By the time I graduated college, I was 25. Um, so two kids, one on the way, 25 years old or 26, can't remember. Um, and, uh, and then by the time, uh, we left seminary and that was in the spring of 2001, I took a job, uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee at a large, uh, at a large church there. Uh, the pastor was a friend of mine and he hired me on to be pastor to young adults, which at that church was everybody in their twenties and thirties. Did that for two years. My daughter, our youngest, was born in Knoxville. Um, and then in early spring of 2003, I got a call from a group of people back home in South Florida asking if I would come home and plant a church. 
which I was very reluctant to do, not because I didn't want to be back in South Florida. I desperately wanted to be back in South Florida. I never wanted to leave South Florida. Um, it was my home. I love everything about it. Uh, but I just didn't think I had it in me to plant a church. I was scared to death. Uh, but to make a very long story short, um, God won the day and we moved in the summer of 2003 back home to South Florida, started a church. That church was doing really, really well. It was growing fast. Uh, and about five years into that church plant, I was approached by a much larger, much more famous church about 20 minutes down the road, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Their founding pastor, D. James Kennedy, had died, and they were now looking for a pastor. And they came to me once, and I said, I'm honored, but I'm not interested. They came to me a second time. I said, I'm honored, I'm not interested. They came back to me a third time. And I said, listen, the only way I would ever consider this is if we merged the two churches because your church needs to be gutted and replanted from the bottom up. And there's no way I can do that by myself. So if you allow me to bring everybody with me, my leaders, my congregants, everybody, I think we can get this done. And that was more of a tactic on my part to get them to leave me alone. But they were excited about that proposition, which was shocking to me. So um, so we did, we went through a meticulous three or four month due diligence process to see if it would work. Um, and then uh, in March of 2009, we merged those two churches and uh, it became one new church. The first six months there was hell on earth, as you can imagine. I mean, merging two of anything is hard. Merging two families, merging two businesses, certainly merging two churches that are very, very different in style and all of that stuff was very painful and hard. But after six months, a lot of that stuff went away uh, and we started to we started to build it um, around the message of grace and the church just exploded. I mean, it, it blew up in all, the, in all of the right ways. Um, my professional life at that point, before I, I moved to Coral Ridge, I had written two books. Um, but once I got there, you know, my, uh, my profile was elevated significantly because it was such a famous church. Um, and so I, even though I had been writing and traveling before that, my life got super busy after that. Um, so writing a book a year, um, uh, you know, traveling around the country, speaking at churches, conferences, various events, universities. Um, I was, my sermons were broadcast on television every week around the world. They were broadcast on the radio every day around the country. Uh, and so life was fast. Life was busy. Life was exhilarating. Um, you know, I had made it to the top of the totem pole in my industry, so to speak. Um, and after six and a half years of being there, my my whole life came crashing down. Um, and this was is the part of the story that, you know, is so uh, unfortunately well known. My worst moment in life was broadcast the furthest. Um, but in the spring of 2015, my my 21 year marriage um, fell apart. 
Uh, it ended in divorce in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife and because I was a public person. All of this played out very publicly. Um, you had everybody and their mother, mostly people I didn't know, commentating about it, writing about it, speculating about it. It made it very difficult for us to deal with it as a family. Um, there was a lot going on at that time uh, in our home, and it just made it very, very painful. At the time it happened, my oldest son was 20, my middle son was 18, and my daughter was 13. My oldest son had just gotten married. Uh, he and his wife had just had their first child. So everybody was in a very vulnerable place. Um, and to get not just the, the devastation and the destruction of infidelity infesting our home and blowing up our private life, uh, my public life was blown up also. And it just, it, may, it was very painful for everybody involved. Uh, everybody. We didn't have. We didn't have the space to process this stuff privately and deal with this stuff privately. Everything was being played out in public. Um, so almost overnight, I lost everything. Uh, of course, I lost my job. Book contracts were canceled. Speaking engagements were canceled. Uh, I mean, in within 24 hours of the news breaking. Um, I mean, I uh, my family, of course, was decimated. Um, I still had hope that I could, that my, you know, now ex-wife and I could, could work things out. Uh, but the whole thing was just a complete mess. And I found myself, Roan, uh, in my early forties undergoing a massive identity crisis. I, I was speaking to a group of men, uh, last weekend and I said, you know, most of us don't know what we're depending on to make life worth living until it's gone. Uh, and for me, so much of my identity was anchored in who I was, the work that I did, the people that I knew, um, my family being intact in the way that it had always been, uh, financial security, all that stuff. And so when that stuff was gone overnight, I found myself wondering, who in the hell am I? I had no idea. And that's a very scary experience for anybody at any stage, but it's specifically scary when you're sort of moving into mid, you know, to the middle of your life. Um, you know, everything from financially, you were on a trajectory to be fine for the rest of your life, socially, professionally, personally, everything seemed to be trending in the right direction. And then overnight it started plummeting. Um, and so I, I went through about a two-year period of just complete dishevelment. Um, I, I was really jacked up. I wasn't, I wasn't jacked up so much in the way that I was acting out at that time. I, at that time, I was almost too scared to act out badly because I was, you know, oh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's appropriate to say this, but I mean, I was scared shitless that I was going to do something stupid um, and yeah. that I was getting that the, another headline would be written. So I kind of kept to myself, got off grid, but the, the turmoil was all internal. Hmm. Um, it was, you know, feeling terrible, terrible. 
terrible. Uh, the regret, the guilt, the shame was overwhelming in terms of what I did to my first wife and especially what I did to my three kids. Um, just devastated. In fact, this has been, it's been nine years now almost. Uh, and if I stop long enough and think about the damage that I did to my family, it's, I mean, I, I still can't help but cry and sort of beat my chest. Um, I have an amazing relationship with my three kids. They are three of my best friends. Uh, our, our relationship was not interrupted even for a second, thank God. Uh, they never blinked. They never bailed. They loved their mother and their father through all of this. And both their mom and I are super grateful for that. Um, very grateful for that. In fact, my 22-year-old daughter lives with my new wife, Stacy, and I. Well, she's not that new. We've been married for seven years. <laughs> uh, but my newish wife, Stacy, my second wife, Stacy, uh, my daughter lives with us, and we just we love it. I mean, she's it's it's awesome. I mean, we're my daughter and I are very close. My sons and I, my sons live about 45 minutes south of me. Uh, in Boca, I'm, mm. a, I'm in Jupiter. So we all, you know, I've got three grandkids. Um, and so anyway, so all of that was repaired. The hard work was done and it was repaired. But I, I mean, I wandered in the wilderness for a few years. Um, thankfully, I had a couple of men, uh, my good friend, Paul Zoll and my good friend, Pat Thurmer, two older men, uh, Paul's in his early seventies, uh, Pat's in his late sixties. Um, and both of them, th those were two friends that stuck. Uh, I, 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 I've told people this many times, but it's really, really hard to know who your friends are when you're at the top and you have so much mm -hmm. to offer. Uh, but when you're at the bottom and you have nothing to offer people but leprosy and liability if they come close – that's when you discover who your true friends are. And what I discovered during that time was I had very few real friends. I had an impressive network. I had colleagues. Um, but I didn't have a whole lot of friends. I thought I did, but I didn't. Um, and Paul and Pat were those two friends uh, who stuck closer than a brother. Uh, they were non-blinking in all of the best ways. They didn't shrink back at my darkest confessions. Um, they didn't shrink back when I would share my struggles or, you know, tell my secrets or, you know, confess my sins or whatever. Um, they were right there, wise, incredibly helpful, gracious, loving, um, firm with me at times when I needed it. Uh, but even their firmness was cloaked in grace and love. Mm. And I wouldn't be here without those two guys. Um, so uh, Stacy, my, my wife, now uh, we got married in August of 2016. Uh, we lived in Texas the first year we were married because that's where she's from, about an hour north of Houston. Lived there near her family. Uh, had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life, but uh, had that year to kind of just do some intense therapy, um, a lot of time alone, um, a lot of time in counseling, uh, just sort of being out of the public eye, off the grid. And God did a really uh, a painful but liberating work of deconstruction in my life at that time. Uh, raised my self-awareness through the roof. I started understanding how and why everything fell apart, what was going on inside of me at the time. Um, you know, I know that 
a lot of people assume that when a man has an affair, it's because he's trying to fill some physical void. He just wants to have sex. And to be honest, Ron, that just wasn't the case for me. Um, you know, my my deepest desires at that time were not sexual um, or in some sense me trying to fill some sexual void. They were emotional. Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of a romantic at heart. And, you know, after you've been married for a long time, if you haven't done the hard work of nurturing that relationship uh, and pouring into that relationship – it inevitably becomes dry. It can happen to the best people, to the best marriages. It can it can be dry, and uh, and you just there a void begins to develop, a longing for connection, a longing for romance, a longing for uh, deep feeling, and some of that was missing um, in my first marriage at the time. And so my my wandering heart was not so much looking for sex. Uh, that 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 came with it, but that was not the primary reason for seeking it out. It was um, it was really a desire to be deeply connected, emotionally connected, to feel alive romantically and emotionally. Uh, and you know, I mean, I went in that sense looking for love in all the wrong places, um, and uh, and there's no excuse for it. Uh, what I should have done with that longing, that desire, was channel it toward my wife at the time uh, and look at her in the eye and say, we, we have some work to do and I'm committed to doing it. So whatever it takes, if I, have, if I need to take a sabbatical, if I need time off, I'm willing to do it. But whatever it takes, I want you to know I'm committed to you, I love you, and I want us to work and thrive but the easier way out was just someone else. Um, mm. You know, that was, that was easier. You're not dealing with all the baggage. You're not dealing with all the hard work. It's not an uphill battle. It feels like you're a teenager in love again. Um, you know, and so, so all of that was, was going on. And, and I didn't realize that until, of course, after the fact. Um, and so that year in Texas was a year of deep deconstruction. It was, it was the year that God worked out my identity crisis that I was undergoing. Um, I went through a season there where I didn't want to leave the house. I was very suicidal. Uh, I, I was, you know, at that time in my mid-40s, had no idea who I was, no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life, no idea how I was going to even support my family. Um, I knew the Christian community well enough to know that uh, my particular sin canceled me forever, that I was never going to be invited back to those churches, those conferences, those, you know, the, the publishers were not going to come to me and ask me to write books. Um, and so I had to start thinking about a completely different line of work. And I didn't know what that was. And that was part of my struggle. Um, after that year was over, in Texas, Stacy and I moved to Fort Myers, Florida, which is on the southwest coast of Florida. I'm from the southeast coast, but this is southwest coast. Uh, at the request of my friend Pat Thurmer, who I mentioned, who was pastoring a small Lutheran church at the time over there, and he said, "Listen, we're we're a small church with an even smaller budget, so we can't offer you a job, but we can offer you community. Uh, 
We are a community built on grace, and we love you, and we believe your best days are ahead of you. And if you and Stacy moved to Fort Myers, we would do whatever we could to take care of you guys. Um, and so we made a couple trips there to sort of explore that possibility, and after the second trip decided this is what God wants us to do. Uh, had no idea what we were going to do for work at that time because, like I said, they weren't offering me a job, just just a place to land, a community to land mm. in. Um, and so we got to Fort Myers in um, early fall of 2017. We were there for a year and a half. During that time, I started writing again um, and really pouring out my guts, telling my story. I sensed God's summons to begin writing again. Um, but I, I, it was a very specific summons. It wasn't just a summons to write anything. It was a summons to tell the truth about myself, to tell the uncomfortable truth about myself and to share the worst parts of me with the public so that they could see the best parts of God. And that's Mm. essentially what I started doing. I started telling my story, uh, describing different episodes, different moments during that time where I was hitting rock bottom and feeling suicidal and alone and how God's grace met me in those dark corners of my life. Uh, And as a result, and it was a friend had agreed to build me a website. And so I was just publishing this stuff as blogs on a website And as a result of that, I started getting invitations to speak all over the place, places I didn't even know existed. Everything from an 8,000-member African-American church in Atlanta to a predominantly all-white Presbyterian church plant with 30 people and a middle school cafeteria, recovery places, (laughs) men's retreats, um, you know, that sort of thing. My, my, My message was striking a very particular nerve at that point. Uh, And so all these people invited me to come tell my story and to uh, share the good news of God's grace as it appeared in my story. Um, And so we were doing that. My wife, Stacy, was traveling with me. We went all over the country. We even left the country uh, to speak, for me to speak. I mean, it was... um, It was a busy, busy, busy time. I was traveling, we were traveling three weekends out of every month. Um, And as exhilarating as that sounds, for a guy like me who's a complete homebody, who likes routine, who likes to eat the same thing at the same time every day, go to the gym at the same time every day, go to bed. I mean, literally, I am a creature of habit. Uh, And so being on the road like that, in a different city every weekend or, you know, three weekends out of the month was exhausting to me. And I was grateful to God for the opportunities to get out there and share my story and to help people um, and to connect with people. But I was also growing very weary of this life. I didn't want to do this anymore. And right about the time I was ready to throw in the towel and decide to do something else, um, we got a call from a group of people here in Jupiter asking if we would be interested in starting a church here. And I had done that, as I mentioned, but that was in my early 30s when I had a little bit more energy. And, you know, here I am in my late 40s at the time, and I'm thinking about how exhausting it was the first time around. And so I was not, I wasn't excited. I was excited about it uh, for two reasons. One was that it would, it would get me off the road. And it would give Stacy and I a chance to sort of land and plant some roots. Um, 
The second reason I was excited about it is because it was back on the southeast coast of Florida where I'm from and where you know my kids were and all that stuff. So I was super excited about that. Those were the only two reasons I was excited about it. I wasn't excited about planting a church. I wasn't excited about having to preach again every week. You know, when you're traveling, you can pre- you can say the same thing wherever you go. It's one or two messages you got because it's all new to these people. Absolutely. So I had been out of the habit of preparing new messages every week. So I wasn't looking forward to that. Um, I I was I was still experiencing a lot of PTSD as it pertains to the church. I felt orphaned and abandoned uh, by the church at large when I screwed up. Uh, and I wasn't real keen on entrusting my livelihood back into the hands of Christians again. Um, I didn't trust them, to be honest with you. I just didn't trust that they're going to stick around when the shit hits the fan. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, so I, God had to drag me kicking and screaming to Jupiter. Uh, Stacy was more excited about it than I was, although it was, it was hard for her too, cause she, cause she could see how hard it was for me. Uh, and she had never done anything like this before. Um, but she was, she was, her faith is stronger than mine. <laughs> uh, I was much more doubtful, uh, much more skeptical. Uh, she was believing that this was what God wanted us to do. And, and, and thanks to her, uh, that became contagious. Uh, and so we made the move to Jupiter to start the sanctuary. Um, I didn't want to just start any kind of church. I wanted to. Do, I wanted it to be a completely different kind of place. Um, you know, a place for misfits, a place for dropouts, uh, a place for people who've screwed up, uh, a place for people who deal ongoingly with things like guilt and regret and shame for things they've done or failed to do. Um, I wanted to create a place for people like me. Uh, and, and so Stacy and I set out to do just that. In fact, when we first met with this group of people who were interested, I said, let me just put all my cards on the table. Number one, here's my story and I'm going to tell it unedited. Uh, the second thing is if we move here, we're not starting just any kind of church. We're starting, we're going to start, uh, a recovery place masquerading as a church, (laughs) Um, and they were all about it. There were a few people in that group who were in active recovery themselves, um, for different reasons. And so they were, they were all about it. So we moved here in, um, we moved to Jupiter in the spring of 2019, started laying the groundwork for the sanctuary that spring and summer. We launched in the fall of 2019. We were up and running in a high school auditorium, uh, for about six months until COVID shut us down. We were shut down for six, uh, eight months, eight months. Didn't think we would have a church uh, when we emerged from that. Um, but during that time, we were able to secure our own space. Um, and we reopened in November of 2020. And that's really when I marked the beginning of the sanctuary, November of 2020. Uh, the, that first iteration, that first six months was kind of like preseason for us, trying to figure out what are we doing? Who are we? Um, but, but now it's, we're rolling and I'm telling Mm. you, man, I have never, I've never felt as free. Um, I mean, the connection that I have with the guys in our church in particular are connections that I myself need. Um, we are in fact a recovery place masquerading as a church. Mm. Um, you know, religionists, 
don't darken our doors because none of them think I should be pastoring anyway, that I disqualified myself forever. So I tell our church, I'm like, listen, one of the great benefits to you that I'm your pastor is that Pharisees won't come through our door because they don't think I should be pastoring a church. So I'm like a, I'm like a Pharisee repellent, uh, when it comes to that. So, um, but I mean, it is, it is a very real place. So real, uh, that to be honest with you, Roan, I've told our people this on numerous occasions. If if the sanctuary didn't exist, I don't think I would go to church. In fact, I'm sure I wouldn't go to church. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether I believe in God or whether I think you know Christian community is important or whether or not I believe God loves me. It has nothing to do with that stuff because I believe in all those things. Um, it's just that the church as it is currently uh, in its most dominant expression is just not a safe place to tell the truth about yourself. It's not. Um, it should be the safest place for broken people to break things and for fallen people to fall down, but it's not. It's the scariest place. I found that out firsthand, uh, and a lot of other people have too that we hear from all over all over the place, all over the world, really. Um, and so we wanted to be we wanted to be a place that was not shocked by sin. And remained amazed by grace. And in order to do that, you have to preach, speak, teach, and cultivate a a message and a culture that is built on the radicality of God's grace. Um, There's a huge difference between grace on paper and grace in practice. And there are a lot of churches that are good when it comes to grace on paper. Most of them suck when it comes to grace and practice. They just do, especially when it comes to Christian leaders. Um, uh, I mean, the church blackballs people, blacklists people as quickly and as easily as the world does. And in, in, in many cases, even more so. Um, and so that's why uh, I, I love where we are at. Um, I love who we are. We have a, uh, a twice a month gathering for men at our church called The Vault. And we call it that because what's said there stays there. And dude, it is a it is a group of colorful characters with colorful language and even more colorful stories. And what I was telling my wife about this the other day, what's so awesome about it is there are a couple of older guys in there who you know are church guys, been in church most of their lives, but they love the sanctuary. And I'm always curious to see their body language when, you know, some guy comes in and just starts dropping the F-bomb left and right because his marriage is falling apart because he can't stop cheating on his wife. I mean, you know, I hate his story. Um, And these guys, these older guys who are, you know, at least uh, based on appearance, seem a bit more refined. um, They don't even blink, man. They're just smiling from ear to ear like they're in in essence, their body language is saying, I've been looking for this my entire life, even though I haven't screwed up in the same ways that this guy has screwed up. All of that stuff he just described is in my heart and I need to be here, too. So it is a it is a potent, powerful place. I mean, we're small. We're not we're not a big church and we like it that way. Um, You know, I I have no idea how big we are. Uh, I would guess that there are probably. 350 people in the area of Jupiter that would call the sanctuary their home church. Obviously, not all of them are there every Sunday. Um, 
So it's it's small enough to where we feel connected, but it's not so small that you feel weird walking in the door if you're a visitor. Like well, this is weird. Um, so it's a it's a it's a healthy size. I love it. Um, I've said before that um, the way we're set up um, is you know our our in person local gathering on a weekly basis or when we get together with men. That's our smallest. That's the smallest demographic of our church or the smallest gathering. We have a large online presence, um, and so our greatest reach is out there, not here. We set up shop here in Jupiter, and we broadcast here from Jupiter everything that we do, but our largest audience is not from Jupiter, uh, which is kind of nice because that keeps that keeps the sort of the overhead low. It's an easily maintained uh, you know, sort of thing we're doing. And, and I like that because in my former life, um, my work was my life. And now the sanctuary is not my life. It's, it's a part of my life. I have a lot more free time to engage with guys and to connect with people and to go deep. I, I think less is more. I've gotten to the point in my life now, I'm 51, less is more. Um, friendships are more important than networks and connections. Um, you know, I'd rather go deep with two or three guys, uh, than to sort of stay on the surface with 500 guys. Um, and that's just, and I'm very comfortable because God did all of that deconstruction work with regard to my identity. I, I, my identity is no longer anchored in how big is the church? How many, you know, do I, are book deals on the horizon? Am I accepted by the broader community? I mean, I can give a rat's ass about that stuff. I really, and that is so liberating to finally be at that place where that stuff mm. doesn't matter. So, um, you know, and I think it, it surprises some people, especially people who knew me before, who get reconnected to me now. And they're like, you know, one of the things that attracted us to your ministry before was you were, you know, you were real and, and we felt like you knew us because you were honest about your own struggles. Um, but we didn't feel connected to you in the ways that we do now because you just don't seem to care about so many things that you used to care about. Like I just, I've been, listen, um, you know, I'm not afraid. I think it was Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Revenant where he says, I'm mm. not afraid to die because I'm dead already. And that's mm. the way I feel. I mean, it's kind of like, dude, I can say whatever the hell I want. And if you cancel me, you're too late, dude. I'm already canceled. <laughs> already been done. Yeah, I'm, I'm canceled and I'm free because of it. Freedom. Right. Freedom. So, um, yeah. so that, that really has freed me to tell the truth about myself. Uh, in a much more unedited way, and I and I share this with our people uh, at the sanctuary all the time, or wherever I travel and speak, um, that the person who is the most free is the person who. F- uh, Oh, how, how does it go? Yeah, the person who is the most free is the person who is the most willing to tell the truth about themselves. Ah, and the person amen. who is most willing to tell the most truth about themselves is the person who knows that God loved them unconditionally. Because when you know that God loves you unconditionally, uh, you don't need everybody else to like you. And when you don't need everybody else to like you, you're more willing to tell the truth about yourself. Because, because you will never have to endure rejection from God you can endure rejection from other people, which frees you to take off your masks, stop pretending, and tell the truth about yourself. So that I could tell you, 
my deepest struggles and secrets. And if you look at me and walk away, I'm, it might sting for a minute, but I'll be fine because I know that God will never walk away. Um, so that's kind of, man, you asked me one question. I talked for probably 35 minutes uh, to give that's you my here, entire dude. life story, but that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> That's why we're here, uh, uh, man. You know, you you know this quote. Uh, I think it was Saint Irenaeus, uh, but the glory of God is a man fully alive. Yes, and, uh, so good, it, dude. Uh, asking you one question, and um, you 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 come to life. You know? <laughs> You're fully alive. Yeah, and you know, Tully, I I man, your story is just so powerful. And uh, it certainly e- exemplifies the, the the best attributes of God mm-hmm. uh, and who He is, and the worst attributes of the church and where we are today in it, and, and the worst attributes of our own human frailty and brokenness. I mean, I yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. really. I mean, I I would love to be able to blame someone for all of my screw ups. I can't. I mean, that that's on me. And uh, I know that I put a lot of people, including my church, um, in a very precarious position uh, when I crashed and burned and bottomed out the way that I did. Um, And I hate that. Um, But as I talk to more people and as more people around the world share their own crash and burn stories with me, it does grieve me that the the church uh, seems to abandon people at their worst. Uh, and and I've, I've shared this before, but um, the church does a pretty good job of uh, extending grace and help to those who are suffering because of what someone has done to them, the victims. But the church has historically done a shitty job extending <laughs> grace and help to people who are suffering because of what they've done to themselves or because of what they've done to others. And the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is for both parties. It's for the perpetrator Mm -hmm. and the victim. Um, And so, you know, I I think the church uh, could learn a lot from the recovery community, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, the, the, the recovery community has learned that the best kind of person to help people who are in the dark is someone who is well acquainted with the dark themselves. Amen. And, um, and you know, you would never, for instance, find uh, someone who has never struggled with alcohol leading an AA meeting. What qualifies them to lead the meeting is their struggle with alcohol. And yeah. the church just, they use passages in Timothy and Titus about qualifications, and they, 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 uh, they butcher passages in the Bible that elevate... Oh, yeah spiritual leaders as being something suprahuman. Um, And so pastors, the ones who reach out to me the most, are pastors who don't feel safe being human and broken because they'll lose their job. They'll get canceled in their towns or in their cities. Uh, You know, they'll be blackballed. Um, and you know, I, uh, it's just a sad state of affairs when you see that it It really is. I mean, because of the platform I had and my name and my family and all that stuff, 
Um, you know, I mean, there have been doors that have been opened to me because my story was so public. There have been doors that have been opened to me that have allowed me to continue doing ministry in the current form that I'm doing it. With a lot of these guys, you know, solo pastors or pastors in smaller places or, you know, don't have a name or don't have a platform. I mean, they're stuck, man. I could read you emails that men have sent me that are so sad. I mean, I read an email from a guy, showed up at 10 o'clock at night one night, and he said, he came through my website, he said, listen, you don't know me, but this is who I am. And he described his career, his life. He was in his mid-60s, described how he was a denominational leader, had written a lot of books, was on the board of their denominational seminary, chairman of the board, blah, 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 just sort of gave me his resume. And said about 18 months ago, um, my son-in-law was on my laptop uh, and discovered that I had been in some same-sex chat rooms uh, and immediately went and told my wife, who immediately went to the church. Uh, Within a week, I was fired. My wife filed for divorce. He said, that was 18 months ago. I haven't seen, uh, I'm now divorced. I haven't seen my wife or spoken to my adult kids during that time. Nobody from the church has reached out. I'm currently Hmm. living outside of, you know, Cleveland, Ohio in a one bedroom apartment. I'm, I want to kill myself. And I just, I want you to give me some reason to keep living. This guy had nowhere to go. Nowhere. Mm. And I know that I was, wasn't was getting the whole story. I mean, there's always more to the story than all that. I get it. And if I were to talk to wife and church and kids, I'm sure I'd get another side. So I get all that. Here's the issue. Regardless of what the story is, everybody in the story at least claims to be Christians. And at, at no point and at no place should a mid-60s man who has screwed up bad be sitting in an apartment by himself contemplating suicide without anybody returning his phone calls. Um, so regardless of who you've hurt or what you've done, I mean, it's it's inhumane in my opinion. And so mm. uh, that's one of 5,000 messages I've gotten over the last four or five years, literally. Um, so oh, yeah. it's their testimonies that prove more than even my testimony that there is a bit of a crisis in the Christian community when it comes to how we handle sinners. My friend Pat Thurmer says, I've been in the church for over six decades, and I've been disappointed in the way the church has handled sinners for nearly six decades, for over six decades. And he said, why is it, I remember him saying this to me one time, why is it that the last institution in all of society that still believes in original sin is so scandalized when they actually encounter it? And he's right. He's right. He's exactly right. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Sad, oh, yeah. true. It is. Uh, you've, you've probably read uh, Paul David Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling, and yeah. where he certainly kind of talks about the, the whole system is completely broken. Um, and, uh, and and I get it. I always say if, if I was a, a pastor and— uh, knowing that if you get honest or tell the truth, you're probably going to get, uh, they'll shoot you first, and then they'll drag you out back and beat you with a Bible, and then they'll fire you. Um, and, and the shooting always, always say, comes look, first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I always say, look, man, I, I like my stuff. I want more of it. 
uh, and I, I wouldn't want to lose my career, my job either. Sure. Um, and but it's such a setup, and and kind of living in this really isolated, disconnected place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, man, uh, your story, just the uh, gosh, being in the public eye uh, as you were, and going through what you did. Um, I mean, it, it is a miracle that you are still alive. It is. Uh, just because of the, I mean, in, in you know, it, our own shame and our infidelities and betrayals, uh, we, we, we don't need more because we, it, I mean, we, we've got it. Mm-hmm. it but then uh, you're in this role and um, in this capacity of, uh, you know, being a pastor and, Certainly, on a national platform and and even international, um, and and then this thing comes public, um, and I mean you talked about it being suicidal, uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a miracle that that you didn't just you know hit the exit button. It is a miracle. Uh, I mean, sure. I I the thought of killing myself, and this is no exaggeration. Um, in fact, my my kids. And my wife, Stacy, can testify to this. Uh, my Stacy more so than my kids. I, I wasn't saying every day I'm going to kill myself. I, I didn't want to burden people with that. Right. But the thought of doing it crossed my mind every day for nearly 18 months. I mean, just when I thought things were bad, losing everything, it gets worse because now you're. It's not just that you lost everything; it's that there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. There's no hope on the horizon. What am I going to do now? Uh, I, you know, I mean, my name is now mud uh, to so many people that I used to respect and look up to, and in an industry that I was once, you know, on the top of, um, and felt like I was somebody because of it has now, you know, sort of just, um, you know, cast me out. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really, really painful. One thing my friend Paul Zoll said to me, and, and I'll, I know we're running out of time, but I'd love to share this real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at my worst, living in Texas, newly married. Stacy was working at a title company, so I was home alone most days. And I was experiencing a really low, low for some reason, just, you know, all the stuff. And uh, Paul Zoll, who was talking to me on a, you know, regular basis at that time, a few times a week, um, I texted him from my home. Uh, it was early afternoon. And I said, Paul, I need you to give me one reason to keep living. And normally he would respond right away. Uh, And like three or four hours went by and I didn't hear from him. And my initial thought was great. Paul's abandoned me too. He's had it. He can't take it anymore. I'm a drain on his life. Uh, You know, he's, he's out, but he did text me back. And he told me that the reason that it took him three or four hours to text me back is because my question was so weighty And he knew that the answer was in some ways a matter of life and death for me. So he had to think about it, pray about it. God, how do you want me to answer this man? Uh, And he sent me back one sentence 
that turned the tide, at least began to turn the tide for me. He said, Tullian, the suffering you are going through is God kicking you, pushing you into a new freedom from false Mm. definitions of who you are. And he had walked with me enough to know that my deepest issue was an identity issue. The deepest suffering was an, was an issue of identity. I, I didn't know who I was because I had so wrongly anchored my identity in all of these other things and people that without these things and people uh, in my life anymore, I didn't know who I was. I felt dead, so I might as well be dead. Um, and by saying what he said, he clued me into that. And sort of showed me that God is doing something good here. And I had written about freedom, preached about freedom, talked about freedom. uh, And here was God now doing the hard work to set me free. And so now I saw freedom as God's mission. Freedom as God's goal. Freedom as the light at the end of this very dark tunnel. Freedom as the hope in a very hopeless moment. And so when I saw that, when he helped me see that, um, I started, I started recognizing sort of a, a method to God's madness, so to speak, uh, and that mm. really started turning the tide for me. Wow, um, that that was a that was a powerful sentence. Um, by the way, I'll I will steal that and I'll use it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you can. You know, counselor types, pastor types. You know, we have the gift, the spiritual gift of plagiarism. Yes, so, yes, I've seen man, that. What, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The way I typically phrase it, it's like, you know, God grabs us by the scrotum and and He drags us through a keyhole. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that's right. what it, that's yeah. what it feels like. Yeah. Right. When we're going through this. Um, and as you say, you know, when we're in the crisis, when we're in the, the darkness, um, I believe, as you just said, that, man, you know, Jesus came for our freedom. Yes. Um, and, and when we just, like, yeah. <laughs> we're open, we're transparent, uh, I got nothing to hide, I hide nothing, you know, you, as you said, you're kind of free to, like, you know, tell it like it is. Uh, yeah. It's a beautiful place. And I um, think when you see, when someone's going through, when someone's experiencing the consequences of bad decisions, it's very easy to think that those consequences equal punishment from God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a Christian, I believe that uh, all of the punishment we deserved was meted out at the cross. So it's not punishment we're experiencing from God. We're experiencing the horizontal consequences of decisions, um, and uh, but it's not punishment from God. It's not condemnation from God. The ho- horizontal consequences do not equal vertical condemnation. And uh, the flip side of that is true as well, that no vertical condemnation does not mean no horizontal consequences. So if some guy asks me, well, in light of God's grace and forgiveness and unconditional love, why shouldn't I cheat on my wife? And my answer is because you'll screw up your life and you'll hurt people that you love, not because it's going to affect God. It, yeah, you know, you'll be a you'll be miserable. You'll be yeah. miserable. It's not because it's not because it's going to affect God or affect the way God feels about you. That was settled two thousand years ago. 
It's because you're going to hurt people you love. It's you're going to usher in guilt and shame and regret in your life. You're going to usher in burdens that you didn't want. Uh, so don't do it because it's stupid, dude, <laughs> and hurtful. <laughs> you're hurting yourself and everybody else. That's why you're not doing it. Um, yes. And so when you're when you're going through that crucible of ache, like you described, the one thing that makes it at least moderately endurable is when you can see that freedom is God's goal in doing Mm -hmm. this, not punishment. When you can see Mm -hmm. that God's goal in taking you through this is for you to be free, not for you to feel whipped. Um, You know, that's a, that a, that paints a very, very different picture of God than the one a lot of people have when they're going through Mm -hmm. crappy stuff because they've done some really crappy things. They just think, well, God, I'm experiencing this because God's pissed off at me. He's mad (laughs) and he's punishing me and he's taking me out to the woodshed. Um, and that paints a picture of God as kind of that, just wait till your father gets home kind of father. Um, and that's not who he is to his people. Um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul said. And Jesus said in Luke 4, I have come to set the captives free. I mean, freedom is God's mission in our lives. Uh, and so when we so see that, when we see that mm. as the goal of God rather than punishment, teaching you a lesson, um, then you know it makes the suffering just a tad bit more endurable because there's light at the end mm-hmm. of the tunnel. It, yes, and uh, we 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 preach freedom um, because, as you said, that is the goal. Yeah, um, and you know it's the it's like I love your description of your church. Uh, yeah, it's a recovery place disguised in a, as a church. Yeah, the discovery um, a recovery place masquerading as a church. <laughs> yeah. Yes, beautiful. Uh, and you know, I we talk about you know recovery. Uh, you know, Jesus talks about recovery the first time he speaks out in speaks in public, mm. um, and it's just the idea. You know, recovery is simply recovering the life that God intended us mm. to live from the beginning, mm. before all hell broke loose. Mm. And you know that that's what we're recovering. Um, and so many people think, you know, recovery is about, you know, some program or some treatment or some something. Um, and certainly those things are good. However, it, it really is the idea of like, man, this life that God offers and what he wanted from the beginning, it's available. Somebody, a friend of mine uh, not long ago described the Christian life as adjusting to freedom, which mm. I think is a great description. <laughs> you know, it's not, I'm becoming better and better and more and more competent every day and less sinful. That's that's not it. Um, I, I've, I've told our people for years now that my life doesn't look like Jesus. It looks like someone who needs Jesus. And uh, my willingness and ability to admit that is a sign of growth. <laughs> Um, you know, we tend to think that growth is I'm getting better and better and better. Whereas in reality, growth is I'm becoming increasingly aware of how weak I am and how good God's grace is. That's growth. Um, you know, it's, it's always, uh, it's always growth in our awareness of the grace we need and the grace we have because of how jacked up we are. Um, and so, yeah, and I think a lot of people misunderstand. I know I did for many years. They misunderstand recovery. They hear the term recovery 
And they automatically think of people in recovery programs because of alcohol or drug abuse or, or food or sex or, you know, whatever. Um, but I tell our people all the time, you know, uh, if you're a human being, you're in recovery. <laughs> If you, you, we've all felt rejected, we've all felt uh, betrayed, we've all betrayed other people, we've rejected other people, we all live with some measure of guilt or regret or shame, wishing we hadn't done certain things or broken certain relationships, certain people have broken relationships with us. Um, if, if you're a human being, you are in recovery. So the question is, it's, it's not so much there are two kinds of people in this world, those in recovery and those who aren't, it's... There's two kinds of people in this world, those in recovery who know that they are and those in recovery who think that they aren't. But everyone's in recovery whether they realize it or not. Uh, love it. Um, I, uh, I think uh, you, you, if you could bottle that Pharisee repellent um, <laughs> and figure out a way to market that, sell it on the, on the internet, dude, that, that's a million-dollar idea. That, right listen, there. help uh, me with that because I could sure use a million dollars. We'll split oh, it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, um, uh, man, I uh, just in your story, there's so much. Uh, man, we, we all get there however we get there. And um, and then certainly, you know, God uses our brokenness much more than He uses our resume. And uh, very well your, said. Your story is a beautiful picture of that. Um, and well, thank you. You know, uh, the 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 pain and the and the hurt and the everything that you've been through. Uh, certainly, I believe it it makes you much more qualified uh, to be a pastor, to be in ministry, and. Uh, that's what it really is all about. Well, thank you. I, I, I've said for years now that God loves and uses weak and fallen people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. <laughs> so, so if you are a weak, fallen, broken human being, uh, you are qualified to be used by God. There's no question. Amen. So, bonafide. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, I uh, we could I could continue this conversation uh for 2 days, I think. Uh uh just man, so so grateful for you taking the time and joining us and uh I know that uh, your story will be an encouragement uh, as it has been to so many and uh, just you know, God continues to to use it um, in in a in, in in just a great way. Um, and um, so, if if people want to get in touch with you, tune in to uh, what you guys are doing down there. Yeah, uh, what's the best way? Yeah. for that to happen. So uh, the church website is just thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I think it's .com. Might be .org. Might be both. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but um, we uh, we have all my social media. Instagram is Tully and TCH. I don't spend much time on Twitter these days because it's such a toxic environment. Uh, but Facebook, I think, is Tully and T. Um, Instagram, and I do. I literally do my best to respond to as many messages as I get, private messages that I get, um, and so people can reach me there. 
Um, they can, you know, follow me there and reach me there. And uh, if, if they need help with something, I'm happy to do my best to help them myself or point them in the right direction. All right, man. So appreciate it. Thank you again. Appreciate You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Ron. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. To learn more about what you've heard today and to engage with the Sex, God, and Chaos team, visit sexgodchaos.com.